what does Easter mean to me? And what I'm thinking there, not just what does Easter mean to me specifically, but as we take these thoughts and as we take uh, what we're going to talk about and think what does it mean to me personally, each one of us uh, thinking about this and thinking about Easter. Because, you know, Easter, it's a funny thing. Easter is not always um, a time of fond memories. Um, there was a, a, a husband and a wife named Dan and Louise years and years ago, and they had two sons, and they wanted a girl. And Louise got pregnant and had a miscarriage, and so they were very disappointed. Then she got pregnant again, and everyone got excited. The whole family, the extended family got excited. This girl, their, their little baby girl is going to arrive, and people started uh, giving ideas on names. And a great aunt uh, said, there's an old family name that is just something we all love, this, this name uh, for your little girl, Twyla. And uh, so they thought about that, and dresses were bought, and clothes, and then horror of horrors, a little boy was born. So they named him Robert. <laughs> See where I'm going with this? Which I think in Aramaic means we wish you were a girl. <laughs> but they had all these clothes, all these cute little dresses. And they thought, you know what? He's just a baby. He won't remember. But deep down, somehow he does. He does. And years later, uh, we went to a large denomination, usually uh, Easter and Christmas was about when we went, and um, I can remember a great aunt coming up to me, sweet little Bobby, you could have been Twyla. <laughs> and I remember thinking, darn, they really wanted a girl. <laughs> and all I can say is thank God for therapy. Um, that's uh, just a, you know... So Easter, Easter is not always a time of fond memories for some of us, right? Because I still feel that pinch, and I still feel that feelings. And for a lot of people, you know, this time of year, and you may be here today, and this is uh, maybe a time of turmoil for you. Maybe there's been some struggles. Maybe there's been some emotional struggles, uh, relational struggles, physical struggles, spiritual struggles, financial struggles. You may be going through difficult things right now. And so for you, Easter is not just this, oh, this is such a wonderful time of new beginnings and flowers popping out of cracks and sidewalks and that kind of stuff. This is a tough time. And, and for a lot of people, you find this time of year, you can be feeling anxious because there's pressure. There's weight on you. And you could be regretting decisions maybe that you've even made in the last few years. And then you stop and think, boy, what will, what will it be like next year? What's coming and anxiety can play a large part in that. And so, you know, nobody ever wants a season of hard times or challenges. But when those times come, oftentimes they help us, they make us stand back and think, what, what am I really counting on? What's really important for me in this world? Why am I here? Is there something that has a foundation that's solid enough for me to make it through the most difficult times, to make it through the tragedies that are a part of being on this earth. And so one of the reasons why I've been looking forward to this weekend is because this weekend we discuss the only hope that is capable of sustaining us. 
through the most difficult of times. Because you know what? For the past 2,000 years, people have not been gathering together and saying, the stock market has risen. It has risen indeed. They're not saying that. They're not saying, oh, the value of the dollar in relation to you know, the drachma has risen. We're not saying that. The unemployment rate has risen. We're not saying it. The gross domestic product has risen. My 401k has risen. We're not saying that. People don't gather to say that. Because there's only one hope that, interestingly, works all over the world, in every culture. It's not limited to any particular culture. On every continent and every culture, for 2,000 years, there has been a hope that sustains people through poverty, disease, pain, hardship, death, And that is this, he is risen. Christ is risen indeed. And so we need to look at that because we need to take a hard look and think, okay, so everyone's saying, is he really risen? I mean, this is the crux of the matter, right? Did it really happen? Did Christ rise from the dead? Because the apostle Paul, he tells us, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we are the people to be most pitied. We're doing something that's hopeless, and worthless. And so I want you to see, um, as we talk about this, talking about this idea of the resurrection, we're going to look at some scripture here, and uh, it has disappeared. It's on your sheet. Look on your sheet. I'm sorry. Oh, it hasn't disappeared. I didn't put it on there. That's my bad. All right. I almost threw our audiovisual people under the bus, and it's all my fault. Look at at the scripture on your sheet there. First, starting with verse 3. For our What I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, all right? First important. This is the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And so Paul is writing this. If you look at that, that's 1 Corinthians 15. The book of 1 Corinthians was now the dating. They're beginning to realize the book of 1 Corinthians was probably the first book, possibly the first book written. And we're talking about 15, maybe 20 years after the death of Christ. Very recent. People still remember. There's still witnesses who saw Jesus And Paul is pointing to them and saying, there's witnesses. You can ask them. So in verse 4, he says, the key there is, though he's buried, he was raised. There's an empty tomb. Paul is saying, here's the case for the resurrection. First of all, there was an empty tomb. In verse 6, he says, there's eyewitnesses, lots of eyewitnesses, hundreds of people who saw him, who touched him. Now, if we're talking 15, 16, 18 years after the resurrection, those people are alive. What is Paul saying? He's saying, go ask them. You got doubts? Go ask them. Now, he's not going to say that if he's worried that people might not back him up on this. Right? If people will go, no, I don't know what Paul's talking about. Paul's not going to say that. He's saying it because he knows those people will back him up. He knows they saw this. And he's willing to bet on it. All right? So when we talk about the case for the resurrection, there's the, the, the empty tomb, there's the eyewitness, but the third thing is the changed lives of the people who met Jesus. And Paul says, I'm a prime example of that. All right? For his offer to talk to them to ring true, he has to have confidence they're all going to agree with him. And he's saying, they're still testifying of the reality of the resurrection, and it changed their lives. You can ask them. Now, 
I want to give you a quote. This is a uh, German theologian, uh, uh, Wolfhart Pannenberg. He died not too long ago. But I want to tell you, if there's an award for the coolest name alive, that's it right there. Wolfhart Pannenberg. That's a cool name. Just that name alone makes me want to listen and read what this guy has to say. And he says this, the early Christians could not possibly have preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and these hundreds of witnesses really existed. In other words, he's saying the church could not have started unless there was an empty tomb. Because, I mean, you know, they say Jesus rose from the dead. Everybody goes, no, he didn't. All right? So there has to be an empty tomb. But somebody could say, oh, the body was stolen. I understand that. But here's the thing. There's hundreds and hundreds of changed lives of people who say, no, I saw him. No, I saw him too. And my life has changed. My life has changed. This is a powerful case here. And what this means is, as we look at this and we say, how can I trust this document, this ancient document? Pannenberg here is saying, don't think as a theologian. Don't think religiously. Think historically. All right? The church would have never got off the ground if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. It would have never happened. Right? N.T. Wright wrote this. He said, if there was only an empty tomb and there had been no sightings, then people would have believed the body was stolen. If there had been eyewitnesses claiming to see him, but the tomb still had a body in it, everybody would have believed they're crazy, they're hallucinating. But only if all these are true, the empty tomb, the sightings, and the permanently changed lives of the witnesses, only of all these, only if all of these were true, could Christianity have ever begun. He's saying, he's saying, look, that all had to work that way. Otherwise, no one would have believed it from the get-go. From the very first day, no one would have thought about it. Okay, but what about us? We can't go talk to the witnesses. We can't talk to the eyewitnesses. And Paul, I think, if he was saying, he would say, he would say, no, you don't have to wait to have some kind of an experience like I had. He would say, look, let's look at the facts. Now, how do I know he would say that? Because he says it another time. In the book of Acts, Paul's saying, look, there's a way we can look at this so that you can believe. It would be like this. If I couldn't make it today, I wonder what would happen if the apostle Paul could take my place in the pulpit. All right? What would he say? Well, the first thing would be this. First thing is, everybody would be really thrilled, right? How cool would that be? Bob's sick. The Apostle Paul's here? Oh, that's a good one. He's a good replacement. <laughs> Tell Bob to stay, right? We'll hire Paul. But what would he say? Would he say, wait until you have an experience? Wait until Jesus appears to you? Well, in Acts 26, Paul is under arrest. And what's happening is the ruler of that area, a man named Festus. Now, if there's an award for having the crappiest name, <laughs> bingo, right? That guy won it. You got Wolfheart and you got Festus, right? See what I'm saying? Okay, that's just how it works. All right, so this man named Festus, he is, he's the governor of the area. And he calls the other, the king of Judea, Agrippa. And he says, come over here. I'm interviewing, I'm looking at one of these Jews that we've arrested. You're an expert. You live there all your whole life. You've been in Jerusalem your whole life. You know all about Jews. Come help me with this. Come help me interview this guy. Because I don't understand why these Jews act the way they are. They're so pesky and blah, blah, blah. Now they got this new group of them. They call themselves Christians. They're all wacky. So Agrippa comes and joins him, and they bring Paul out, right? And at this point, well, Paul's been talking about the resurrection, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. 
he shouted, your great learning has driven you insane. See, Festus knows Paul is, is, is a, uh, he's a great philosopher. He's a great scholar. Paul's well-known. He's a rock star. He studied under one of the greatest rabbis in the history of Judaism, all right? And so he's a well-known person. So Festus knows who Paul is, but Paul starts talking about the resurrection, and he says, dude, you're crazy. You've spent so much time in books, you've flipped out. You've gone crazy, right? So what does Paul say? He says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus regardless of your name, Paul said, what I am saying is true and reasonable. The king, he's, now that's Agrippa, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. He's saying, look, look, he says, Agrippa, hey, you know, I mean, you were there. You were in Jerusalem at that time, you know what happened. You know all about, you know about the guards. You know about the eyewitnesses. What is he saying? He's saying, Festus, we have to address facts. We have to address these things. The historical record is important here. And we know he's saying that because Agrippa in that passage immediately starts pushing back. He immediately gets upset with Paul. You know, don't throw me under the bus, Paul. Don't talk to, you know. And so, He's saying we need to address this from a historical viewpoint. And people, you know, generally people don't like it when we talk about these things. People will say, you believe in Jesus, great, go ahead. If it fulfills you, go ahead. You go ahead and believe. But don't insist that others believe because it might not fulfill them. You know what Paul, I think, would say that? He would say, fulfill? Are you nuts? Christ didn't fulfill me. To Paul, Christ was a threat to everything he believed. He would say, everything I stood for, he ruined my life. I was important. I was a leader. I was on the fast track to the top, and I became public enemy number one, and now I'm in chains because of Jesus. Don't talk to me about fulfillment. Because Paul had everything. He had reputation. He had righteousness. He had the right worldview. He had control of his life. And that was all gone. Because Paul's point is, hey, I didn't want to believe in him. You know, we have to be careful when we talk about fulfillment. Because when we believe for, for, for fulfillment, we're creating an idol. And, and some people can do that. They can make an idol out of Jesus and just believe in him because it will make them feel better. And it just becomes a creation of their heart. And Paul says, I didn't believe in him because it would make me feel better. He wrecked me. You know, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. One of my brothers came home talking about Jesus, and I can remember saying, I will never become like that. Because to me, he went to the dark side. I mean, it's kind of weird to say it that way, but that's the way I looked at it. He'd become one of those fanatics, one of those weirdos. I thought he was going to start, you know, doing crazy stuff and asking, going door to door and whacking people or whatever. And so I just said, I will never do that. Never. And I even said, God, if you're there, I don't want you. Never. I'm going this way. And we sang, your goodness is running after me. Okay, God ran after me. He chased me down. He ran me over. And, it, and I didn't feel like his goodness to me at the time. I know now it was his goodness because I've seen what he's done. But at the time, I didn't want it. I wasn't looking for him. He looked for me. And this is what Paul is saying. 
Paul is saying, you have to account for the fact that hundreds of Orthodox Jews, the last people on this planet to be willing to believe Jesus was the Son of God, the last group of people to believe that, that a man could write. They believed in a resurrection, but it was a total group resurrection that was coming way off in the future. They did not believe an individual could be raised from the dead. I mean, they knew when a person dies, they stay dead, it, just as much as we know. It, it isn't any different from them as it is from us. Uh, I, I, was, I was reading a guy one time, and he was talking about how um, the, this couple, they had their dog. One day, their dog was in, the, in their backyard with the neighbor's pet rabbit, shaking it. And they're like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. So they run out there, and they grab the dog, and, they, and it's dead. And it's matted fur and all dirty. And they're like, what did you do? And she goes, well, uh, uh. so she washed it and combed the hair and she snuck over next door and put it in the little rabbit cage there so that they would find it dead but looking recently dead. She said a little later that afternoon, there were screams from the backyard. And she said, what is it? What is it? A rabbit, it died and we buried it two weeks ago and it's back. <laughs> See, people know, people know back then just like we know now, rabbits stay dead. People stay dead. Right? So for the Jews, this thought of an individual resurrection was ridiculous. It was unbelievable. So you have to account for, how did that happen? You have to account for that. You have to account for the fact that so many people saw him so many different times. You have to account for the fact that their lives changed radically radically because of their belief in the risen Son of God. You have to come up with a historically plausible idea of what happened. How did the Christian church start? Like, on a, if it started on a lie, how did it sustain itself? But to care, carelessly just say, well, I don't believe it. That's not being intellectually honest. Paul says we have to be rational. I'm saying we have to be rational. Why? Because it addresses what I think is one of our most profound existential needs, and that is this. Our heart needs a Lord who is not the product of the desires of our heart. What am I saying there? We need a God who is not a God that we invented. We have a tendency to make God be what we want him to be, and then he's not God anymore. We need a God who is God just because it's true, not because we were looking for it, not because we want it a certain way. It's just true. There is a God, and this is who he is. And that's what we need. Because if we make a God in our own, in, in our own likeness, then that God just agrees with us all the time, and this is just another version of me. And that's a waste of time. Trust me. We need a God who will get in our face and sometimes contradict us and shake us and tell us, this is what you need to do. You need a God who will love you when you hate yourself. You need a God who will correct you when you're going astray. W.H. Auden is one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. He's also, he also was a steadfast atheist for most of his life. And then he came to a crisis in his life brought about by World War II, and he became a Christian. And he told his friends, and they immediately they just started writing him off because he'd left the atheist faith in that sense to them, and and he'd become a Christian. And he, did, he, and he told them, I wasn't looking for this. I didn't want this. I didn't even believe in him. And he's wrecked me. 
And they said, why? And he says, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams, because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I had made him in my own image. He says, this, I was suddenly confronted with a God who was not like anything that I wanted him to be, and he shook me. See, he's saying, I read the New Testament, and this is not a made-up savior. He contradicts what I want. He defies my will. He tells me that I'm sinning. He is the opposite of what I have made up. His friends wrote, well, what about Buddha? What about Muhammad? And he says, none of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. He says, this God, I get angry sometimes because of what he states and what he tells me. And then I know I didn't make him up. He's real. And in some ways, he's a threat to me. Why? Because I'm going to lose control of my life if I trust him. That's the kind of Jesus that can change you. He'll lift you up when you hate yourself, and he'll jerk you down when you're full of yourself. And ironically, this is what we need. Because ultimately, that is where fulfillment is. Not because we're chasing fulfillment, it's because we find God, and that's where it lives. That's where it is. So, real quick, how does Jesus change our lives? What does this mean to me? What does it mean to you when we talk about Easter? First, the resurrection means your worth does not fluctuate. In the past 10 years, we've seen tremendous upheaval in our country, financially, politically, in all realms. Tremendous upheaval. And some people now are feeling good about things and some people are feeling bad. And 10 years ago, sometimes it was reversed and some were feeling bad and now some are feeling good. But I want you to see something. 10 years ago, your life was worth the same thing to God that it is today, 10 years later. Your worth does not fluctuate in God's eyes. Can you imagine, can you, can you imagine like three or four days after Christ has risen and James and John are talking and John says to James, he says, he is risen. James says, the Lord is risen indeed. But John says, yeah, but my fishing business has dropped off 40%, man. I'm bummed. I'm really depressed about this. Have we overfished this area? I feel like a failure. I'm not sleeping well. I'm anxious. I don't know when things are going to turn around. When are the fish going to start biting? It might be years. Can you imagine James? Are you kidding me? A man just rose from the dead. He's God. And you're worried about fish? That doesn't even matter. Money doesn't matter. Nothing matters but this. He is risen. And so money doesn't define your identity. doesn't define your worth. Your job, your vocation, your life, your position, your relationships, your grades, none of that reflects your worth to God. Your worth remains constant. You are worth his son to him. And if you accept Christ as your savior and you're living that life for him, then you are his son or daughter. That's what you're worth to him. Peter says, for you know what was paid to set you free. You know what it costs for you to get free. Not something that can be destroyed. I mean, money's not wrong. Position's not wrong. Those things aren't wrong. Go ahead and make money. It's okay. But it will end. It will be destroyed. It doesn't come close to the sacrifice of Christ. So you can worry about a lot of different things. But you can walk out of here today knowing one thing. Your worth to God is the same today as it has been and is the same as it will be for eternity. You are incredibly valuable to God. The God of the universe values you so highly.
You are worth the life of his son. He died on the cross, he was resurrected, and he is risen to prove that to you. Secondly, the resurrection means your future is not at risk. All right? Your future is set. I love history. I love looking at characters in history. A character that I really love is uh, one that I really love is Winston Churchill. I love it because he was just such a brilliant man. He was brave and he did all kinds of, but he, and, and just, just an incredible character and, and funny. Um, he used to have a running feud with a woman, Lady Astor was her name. And uh, one time she said, she said to him as, when he was the prime minister, she said, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I would poison your coffee. And he said, Lady Astor, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But even Winston Churchill, right? He couldn't defeat death. He couldn't defeat death. And when he died, they had this wonderful state funeral, you know, beautiful, beautiful historical cathedral. And at the end, you know, he's the, he's, he was the, the leader of the nation through World War II. He was a great, uh, a great politician, a great man, well, just loved and respected. And so he has died, and they've laid him in this, in, he's in his, in, his, uh, in his coffin. And at the very end of the funeral, way up high in, in is, is a little balcony, and a bugler steps out, and he starts playing taps. Day is done, gone the sun. It, it, it's over, which is an appropriate thing to play at a funeral. And so taps finally ended and people are crying. It's just an emotional moment for the whole nation of, of England. And if you know this, what happened is then on the opposite side, another bugler stepped out and he played. It's pretty good, right? It's a, it's a bugler playing. It's reveille, right? The get up. A new day has started. Why? Because Winston Churchill wrote, and he told his wife, and he told his friends, there is a resurrection coming in Jesus Christ, so it is not the end when I die. And so I want Reveille played at the very end of my funeral because there's a resurrection coming. Winston Churchill never said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus said that. And your future is not at risk. Your future will have problems. Everybody's future has problems. There's a very good chance you will die eventually. And that won't surprise Jesus because he's already prepared for it. Because he already died. And he's taken on himself the worst that death can do, and he's risen. So the resurrection means your future is not at, not at risk. Finally, the resurrection means your past is not unforgivable. I think this is key for us to remember because oftentimes in our lives, I know I can do this too, we remember things we've done, we feel that sin, we feel that shame sometimes over again and he's saying, no, that's been paid for. Your worth is established, your future is not at risk, your past is not unforgivable no matter what you've done. Years ago, there was a guy who worked for General Electric when General, around the early 1900s when General Electric was exploding and they were building these giant turbines. And his, he was their chief engineer. His name was Charles Steinmetz, and he was a genius with this stuff. He helped design much of it. And he, so he knew these machines inside and out. And uh, when he retired, sometimes they struggled because he had been their go-to guy. And one time, with this giant turbine, they just could not figure out what was wrong with it. So they finally called him and said, can you just please come back? Just do this one, one thing. And so he went into this giant, with these giant turbines, and he was walking around, and he says, okay, do so, uh, okay. And he listened some more, and he did, uh, okay. And finally, after like an hour, they said he came to a little plate, and he marked an X with a piece of chalk. 
And he walked out, and he said, inside that, behind that little plate, that part is broken. And they're like, oh, we've checked it. We've checked that. He says, it's, it's bad. Just put a new one in, trust me. And so they did it, you know, this giant turbine. Well, then they got the bill, okay? And this is early 1900s, right? He sent them a bill for $10,000. And they were like, hold on. That's a lot of money for an hour's worth of work. And so they thought, what we'll do is, they sent it back, could you please itemize that bill? And so he sent them back a piece of paper that said, making a chalk mark, $1, knowing where to put it, (laughs) $9,999. Why? Because he knew it. He designed it. He'd worked on it. He knew it inside and out. He knew the sounds. He knew that, so that he immediately, within an hour, he knew exactly what was wrong. Who do you call when your life breaks? Who will you call? Who have you called? If you have a marriage that falls apart, if you mess up as a parent and damage your child in significant ways, if you violate your values and your integrity by your actions, if you mishandle anger in a way that embarrasses you greatly in front of people, if you get trapped in deceit, if you get greedy and it destroys something in your life, if you get hooked on an addiction that ends in humiliation, or if you're just afraid to say something or do something that you know needs to be said or needs to be done, and you just feel ashamed that you won't do what you know you should do. When you feel like, I'm powerless to handle this, who will help me? Who will help me? Where's my Charles Steinmetz that knows where to put the X? And it's probably no surprise to you that I'm saying it's Jesus. You see, at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we hated him, he died for us. He died for me knowing I'd shake his, my fist at him and say, no, I don't want you. It's funny. Nothing we've ever done is beyond God's ability to cleanse or forgive because Christ died on a cross and he is risen. And some of you and myself, we need to hear this. The resurrection means the best is yet to come. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the resurrection means the best is yet to come for you. Wherever you have traveled, however old you are, you have not seen the best yet. It's coming. And it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, we'll, we'll talk about anything in our day. Um, I, I, I have a little four-year-old grandson, and I don't know where he saw. He saw something in a video or he heard something or whatever. Well, a couple times then he started questioning his parents and, and uh, me, you know, pops. And he started asking about death and heaven. And, and, and his, my daughter and her husband were like, what in the world? I have our four-year-old son. What is he talking about? Oh, you know, this is terrible. And I'm like, oh, just give it a little time. But... We don't like to talk about death, right? We don't like to think about it. We don't even like to name it. We play a game called life, right? We play life. You eat a cereal, cereal called life. There's no cereal called death. I don't know, like for people who are slow to wake up or something. I don't know what that would, how that would work. We buy a product that's called life insurance. 
And how do you collect it? You die. No one calls it death insurance because no one would buy it if we called it. We have to make it sound nicer. We don't like to talk about death. We don't know how to handle death. And here we have this man, Jesus, who died and has come back from the grave, and he says, I know how. I know how to handle death. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me, by coming to me, by following me, by trusting me, by putting themselves in my hands, for you, death is ultimately powerless over you. That's what the resurrection can mean for you. And so then, there's a call. It's from Jesus, it's from Paul, it's from Peter, it's from people throughout our lives, it's from loved ones who have gone on before us who are saying to us, okay, how you need to become a part of God's resurrection plan. Now, some people try to be good enough, which ultimately is a disaster. I don't know if you've tried that. You just try to work super hard and be a really good person, and at some point it falls apart. And even when you're being that good person, you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I gotta act nice to this person, even though this person's a piece of, you know, I like to slug So inside, you know, inside you're feeling this terrible feeling towards this person, so you know it's all fake. That's just trying to be good enough trying to volunteer enough, trying to give to charity enough, trying to go to church enough. And the good enough plan just doesn't work very well. Because God's not a good enough kind of God. He's a perfect God. And I'm glad he is. Because I don't want heaven to be a good enough kind of place that just kind of barely makes it. It's, God says it's a perfect place, and it's for perfect people, people that he makes perfect through his son. So the good enough plan is not a good idea. Some people try the comparison plan. I mean, th I think a lot of times it's, this is very subtle for people. Like, they don't think it through very well. They kind of go like, well, you say, well, you know, God, the Bible talks about sin. That's where we've gone against what God says how we should be. And, and, and in our thoughts or in our actions, and people go, oh, yeah, I mean, I, but I'm not like that. And so then they start pointing. You know, this person, that person murdered somebody. Now there is a bad person. I'm not a bad person. See, so, so what are they doing? They're saying, we hope God grades by comparison. So they're saying, when I'm in line to get through the pearly gates, right, I hope I'm standing behind Saddam Hussein. So God goes, oh, you are bad, out, next. Well, you look so good compared to him. You're in. But what if you're behind Mother Teresa? Then you'd be like, hey, does anybody want to skip? Anybody else feel in a hurry? You know? Because it's Mother Teresa, right? And if God even does something like, sorry, Mother Teresa, you're not good enough, you're like, what? What? That's the comparison. It doesn't work. Because everybody has someone else to compare to. It never works. God called, came up with another plan. It's called the grace plan. He's saying, just forget it. You can't live it. You can't live the perfect life. But Jesus did, and he wants to give it to you. He was in the position when he went to the cross to pay the moral debt I could never pay, to die the spiritual death I could never die, so that now being loved, being forgiven, being renewed is available as a gift of God because of Jesus. So what do I do with that? I have to make a decision. I have to make a decision. I have to decide. I have to make a commitment. When I asked my wife to marry me, um, I think I shared this before, but that's all right. Uh, I was super nervous. It was at her house, and, and I'd, I'd got a ring. It was an old family ring that had been a family heirloom, and, and, and I had it in the car, and I came in, and we're sitting on the couch, and I'm thinking, oh, I got a weekend. We got a weekend here at her parents' house. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And finally, she looked at me, and she said, what is wrong with you? And I said, well, what are you, what are you talking about? 
Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, right? And she, she looked at me and she said, I can see your heart beating in your shirt. My heart was beating so hard. I said, you know what? I, let me, I just, I forgot something in the car. Let me run and get the car. Run out and get, and so I got the ring and I came and I sat next to her. And I said, babe, listen, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? And she's like, oh, oh, I love it. Oh, and she's like, oh, that is, oh this is so, it fits me. How did you get, no, 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 like that. And all of a sudden I was like, um, uh, you, you didn't answer. You, you didn't say yes. And, and I'm not looking for, oh, the ring is beautiful, and oh, it fits me. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a commitment, right? I'm looking for an all-in. Let's push all the chips to the middle and show our cards, and this is it. I'm all in on this one. That's what I was looking for. And she was like, oh, you know what I'm thinking. I'm like, maybe, but I'm, I'm looking for <laughs> communication, you know, doing that thing. And she said, yes. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> That's her. Whew. Because I thought you were leading me along for a second. See, I need that commitment. And God is saying to us, look, I'm offering this to you. It's, all I'm looking for is a commitment. I want you to be committed to me, and I will be committed to you. I've proved that. I've proved that. And so he's saying, will you say yes? Will you say yes? Now, you may be here and you say, Bob, I'm a Christian. Okay, that's really nice, Bob. Okay, but he's still saying, are you thinking through what this means in your life to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you thinking through the implications when you can say, he is risen? Because the implications are profound. You can't say he is risen and then just go live like everybody else lives. Because if he is risen, it changes everything. And so you may think, I'm speaking to certain people, I'm speaking to everybody here, I'm speaking to myself. Because I say he is risen. So how does that change me? How does it change the way I treat my wife? How does it change the way I treat my kids? How does it, way, how does it change the type of neighbor that I am? How does it change the type of person I am to strangers? How does that change the way I treat people that I don't like? Because it has to. It has to. And God is saying, looking for people who say, I'm committing my life to you. I, I have received or I will receive that free gift of your grace in my life. And Easter is just not a day on the calendar anymore. And as we think about that, as we think through these issues, I'd like to say one other thing. And you may be here with us. We have a big crowd today. You may be here and you may be going, Bob, yeah, fine, heard this stuff before. I don't think I believe it. I'm not sure if I believe it. Okay, we would love to send you information. Just, here's the deal. You, just so you make a rational decision for God or for Christ or against God, against Christ, we want you to make a rational decision and not just a knee jerk, not just to think, well, I hope I'm behind, if it's really true, I hope I'm behind Saddam Hussein, you know, because there's only one Saddam Hussein. So your odds are slim, Right? But we would love to send you a book, an easy read. Trust me, if I'm sending it, it's an easy read, okay? We would love to send you a book, an easy read, some material that's easy to, to digest, that just lays out the case, presents the case, you make the decision. You look at the facts. You decide how you believe. That, we're not here to force you. But if you're not sure, we would love to send that to you. All I need, ultimately, and here's the catch, right? I need your address. I'm not going to bill you for the book just going to send it to you. 
free of charge, saying thank you. And you can write it on one of those white cards. You can call the church. The church number's in the bulletin. My email is in the bulletin. You can email me. We would love to do that for you because we just want you to to make an informed decision. That's all, just to think through what you believe and why you believe it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for everyone who is here. No matter who we are or where we are, you know every heart in this room. And so, God, we just thank you for everyone that you have brought here to be here this morning. And we pray that your spirit would be working to deal with hearts, every heart, mine included, God, in in just the ways that we need to be dealt with, the ways that we need to change, and we just pray that your spirit would be working. We thank you what this morning represents, that at a moment in time, the eternal broke through. Christ was raised from the dead, and now we have access to it. We have access to a life that you describe as eternal, not just never-ending, a life that starts and begins and works here on this earth. Father, help us to want that. Help us to seek it with all our hearts. And we thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. And uh, we just want to tell you, if you're a guest here, please do not feel pressured to give. That is not.